0: Well, we return to Titus chapter 1 this morning after a bit of a break from it at the uh, church picnic. We're going to be thinking about Christians and discernment this morning. Now, to review for you, if you haven't been with us the first four weeks in our study in Titus, we looked at the span of salvation from, (laughs) it's called before the ages began, all the way through the Word of God coming to us through the preaching or the proclamation of the Word that Paul had been entrusted by command of God our Savior. And then we looked at how Paul instructed Titus to establish elders in all of the churches on the island of Crete and the qualifications of those elders. We looked at that for a couple of weeks, the different qualifications for elders. What we're going to see this morning is that there's a reason why really good elders need to be established in churches, and that is so that true Christians can grow in discernment, knowing right from wrong, good from evil. We live in a day where discernment is hard to come by. Information is not hard to come by. You can get lots of information from lots of different sources. But trying to figure out what's real from what's not real, what's true from what is untrue, what's good from evil, right from wrong is a little more difficult. So what we tend to do is to reduce our own worlds into what I call an echo chamber, a chamber where we've just got our few places where we go. A few websites, a few media, a few Bible teachers, what have you. And so what that does is it tends to confirm our biases. Maybe good, maybe bad, but how do we know? Uh, To complicate matters further, anytime you happen to encounter someone who disagrees with you, the discourse tends not to be really all that fruitful it ends up being kind of biting and you end up in a little bit of an argument and you're like, what, what happened? You know. And so this idea of discernment is a pretty important thing here for us to figure out how we can develop it. So I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. We'll look at Titus chapter 1 verses 10 through 16 this morning. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. disobedient, unfit for any good work. Please have a seat. The little word for that's right there in the very first word in verse 10 gives us the answer to why must we have good elders in the church. There are people in the church, in the church, who will destroy the church. The reason why you have good elders in the church is that there are people in the church who will destroy the church. Paul describes these folks there at Crete as many who are insubordinate. That means unruly, uncontrolled, rebellious. They don't want to accept any authority. Uh, The same word, by the way, uh, insubordinate, is used back in verse 6 of an elder's children must not be so open to the charge of insubordination. But that's how these folks act, as unruly children. In fact, uh, these folks look upon any authority outside themselves with deep skepticism. Uh, and That's just something that is true of our own age, isn't it? People who look at any authority with uh, deep skepticism about it. They're also described as empty talkers. They talk, often talk a lot, but their talk accomplishes nothing. Their talk doesn't accomplish anything. It's just babble. And you've met those kinds of people before, I'm sure. People who will talk about anything but the things of the Lord. Even people who are in the church who profess Christ. They will talk wonderfully and in detail about their local sports teams. Or they will talk about politics. Or they will talk about the issues of the day or something that happened in the community. Uh, I once knew a fella, not at East White Oak, but uh, who literally would talk about anything and everything, particularly about sports, in the church. But when it came time to talk about anything about the things of God, he was completely absent, had nothing to say. Empty talkers. Deceivers, people who take the truth and then twist it to conform to their reality and then they press that reality on others. The the word that's used here is a description of mind twisters, mind twisters. There are many in the church who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. And in Crete, they largely belong to one faction. Isn't it awful, but It seems quite common that in churches, there are developed, all too frequently, factions. In a church, these kind of folk belong to a group or a faction, a party, as it's described here in verse 10. Uh, That is a group of professed Jewish believers in these churches those of the circumcision party. Now, in in Crete, it were these professors in Christ who happened to be Jewish who formed a faction. In another church, it may be another thing that associates this group into a faction. But the fact is, all of these kind of groups have some things in common. They have some kind of organization, formal or informal. The members of a faction in a church feel like they are possessors of special knowledge. We know something the rest of you don't. And if you were only as clued in as we are, you would think like we do. If you're in this group, you happen to belong to the faction, You have a deep sense of belonging, and you also have a great suspicion of anybody who's not part of the faction. Paul is warning that good elders are going to need to look out for such people. They cannot be allowed a foothold of respect and status in the church, or the work of God will be undermined. So whenever you hear a faction develop in a church, know that it will have two characteristics. It will say, we know better. If you only knew what we know, you would think like we do. And they will have deep skepticism about the existing leadership of the church. This is why you got to have good elders, to handle such things. Well, um, what must be done with these false teachers? Verse 11, they, Paul's not, uh, he (laughs) he doesn't hold back here. They must be silenced. The word picture that Paul paints here is put a muzzle over the mouths of animals. In other words, positive action has to be taken to stop these guys. It will not do to give them a platform and debate them. It's not enough to ignore them. It's not even enough to passively tell other people to avoid them. No, Paul's words are stark here, aren't they? They must be silenced in the churches. Now, this sounds deeply unloving, doesn't it? Um, The supporters of such factions… We'll say it's unloving, won't they? And it can certainly look unloving to the innocent bystander in a church who doesn't know all of this that's going on under the surface and thinks, well, what's going on here? Why must they be silenced? It seems so harsh. Well, the answer is given in the next phrase. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. This word families is literally the word houses. And so while it may mean that they are upsetting particular individual families in the church, I think that maybe what Paul has in mind is that it's a reference to the houses where segments of the church met. Much as we organize our church around adult Bible fellowships, there were in the early church, in fact, I shared this when I taught on ABFs just a couple of years ago, the church larger would meet in various homes. And so what what Paul, if we were gonna put it in East White Oak uh, language, they're upsetting whole ABFs by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Whole units within the church. Think about how messed up a church would be if there were various ABFs or small groups that were being led astray by such false teachers. That gives you a sense, I think, of Paul's urgency here. Uh, the trouble with, uh, the, the problem with troublemakers in the church is they have no idea of the carnage they are leaving behind, not in themselves or even in their opponents, but in the innocent bystanders, the, the common little family in the church or the little group of small group or ABFs or what have you, just they 're just trying to love Jesus and teach their children and their neighbors about Jesus. <laughs> And they're getting completely confused and upset. Paul literally says here it is necessary that these insubordinate, empty, talking, deceiving people must be silenced. How are they upsetting these whole groups within the church? Well, it says that they are teaching for shameful gain what is not necessary. There's a repetition here in terms of the uh, um, language that Paul uses. One's a positive one and one's a negative one. He says, It's necessary to silence these guys because they are teaching what is not necessary. And so I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting that what they are teaching is that if you're really going to be a Christian or you're really going to be a mature Christian, you got to follow what we say and do what we do. And by the way, since we're teaching you all these things that you're supposed to do in order to be a specially mature Christian or even to be a Christian, uh, you might want to pay us a little bit of money because we're such good teachers. That's what Paul has in mind here. They're teaching for shameful gain what is not necessary. I don't have to deal with all this stuff about Jewish dietary laws and all these kinds of things that are associated. And we'll go into detail here in a moment about these Jewish myths that were being propagated. You don't have to have all that nonsense. In fact, it it takes away from the gospel. It's an addition of works to the gospel. And if you add works to the gospel, guess what you have? You have no gospel. We live in a world where the gospel is being compromised all over the place. There was just a survey where. Over a third of pastors, I think who identified as evangelical, said that as long as people were sincere, if they tried to be a good person, they would go to heaven. Just look over for just a second at Titus 3 verse 5, which kind of throws that one into the trash heap. He, that is Jesus, saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. I think that's what Paul has in mind here when he says they're teaching what is not necessary. And at least part of their motivation was shameful gain. Uh, monetary gain, receiving financial gifts for their teaching. You can imagine that they were very uh, uh, into detail and uh, they had lots of handouts and, (laughs) you know, (laughs) they were really good at how they've marketed themselves. We can also imagine other kinds of shameful gain too, can't we? Um, Things like trying to take away proper respect for the elders of a church and seeking to have it for yourself. Oh, yeah, 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 those guys, yeah, they're okay, but really, here's where the real good meat is, you see. Paul says that this problem is one that is endemic in Crete. That is that there's a particular issue of the culture of Crete that lends itself to these kinds of problems. Verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, church fathers from lots of them have identified the author of this saying, this prophet of their own, as the 6th century B.C. Cretan teacher Epimenides. Uh, and the word liar for in greek is actually the word kratizo do you notice the similarity between crete and kratizo you know it's a they're, they're they're liars and we even came up with the word liar based on the word crete you know evil brutes they act by instinct like brute animals lazy gluttons they are self indulgent with too much time on their hands thinking only about their own well being And so what Paul says is that the fact is you have a cultural problem on the whole island. You have people who kind of go this direction anyway. And so when you have that in the church, it's easy for you to accept it. What are the ways, and it's hard, isn't it, to think about your own culture? You know, everybody else has a culture. I, however, am right (laughs) Isn't that how we think? What a crazy notion that we aren't part of a culture. In what ways has American culture impacted the church so that our discernment is compromised? That's a convicting question. In Crete, the fact that the people of Crete Were this way, they loved sword and gain and the lust for wealth. Uh, One writer, Polybius, a Latin writer, Cretans are the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. (laughs) It was just kind of how these folks operated. And so, verse 13, a sharp rebuke is in order. This testimony about the culture in general is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Now, the word rebuke here in verse 13 is the same word as the one that's used that elders are supposed to engage in back in verse 9 that elders are to hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so, verse 13, rebuke them sharply. Now, when we hear the word rebuke, what we often think of is this red-veined angry, yelling, or screaming in somehow in our heads. That's not what Paul has in mind. Rebuke, let's think about the way it's used even just in the pastoral epistles. The, these letters that all come together that start with the letter T of First and 2 Timothy and Titus. In 1 Timothy 5, for example, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So a rebuke is designed not just to teach the person being rebuked, but to teach the others around. Uh, 2 Timothy 3:16. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for rebuke. That is the idea of stopping a direction. We're going and going in the right direction. Or here in Titus chapter 2, verse 15, a, a verse we'll look at as we make our way through this series, declare these things exhort and rebuke with all authority let no one disregard you so as we look at the kind of the span of that word as paul uses it rebuke involves first a biblical rebuke involves education sometimes people just don't know the truth and they need to be taught secondly biblical rebuke involves correction Do you see that here in verse 13? Rebuke them sharply. What's the goal? That they may be sound in the faith. It's not trying to get rid of them, but rather that they could become sound in the faith that is found in Jesus Christ. Now, biblical rebuke in the way of education and correction is uncommon these days. The reason why is that we have gotten it into our heads that rebuke is unloving. The quick way that we'll take offense, combined with the personal crafting of religious belief, it's just we each get to design our own religious system, combined with the fear of giving offense, And of being misunderstood, I mean, after all, who wants to rebuke someone and have them go, I hate you? Nobody wants that. So, the quick way that people take offense, combined with the personal crafting of religious belief, combined with the fear of giving offense and being misunderstood, have resulted in, in our own culture, silence and timidity rather than rebuke in the church. I mean, think about it. When was the last time that you were rebuked and the result was education and correction and that you were thankful to God for the rebuke? It just doesn't happen all that often these days, does it? Most of the time, rebuke just doesn't happen. And then... Sadly, the only people who do the rebuking are people who are wanting to throw their weight around and do it wrongly. (laughs) So what we've got is all the rebukers are idiots and jerks and all the rest of the people aren't doing any rebuking at all. So what does that do? It cements our idea that rebuking is bad. It just cements it in our minds. Combine that with the fact that we have high profile Christian leaders who fail morally. And what does that do? It doesn't just cause a loss of respect for that person. It doesn't just cause a skepticism about that person. It causes a loss of respect and skepticism about all Christian leadership. Well, what is sound faith? It says there in verse 14, or verse 13, that they may be sound in the faith. Verse 14 describes what it means to be sound in the faith. First, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths. Uh, We don't know exactly what Paul is referring to here, but it must be a combination of traditional Judaism and a highly spiritualized Jewish asceticism along the lines of what you might see in Kabbalah today, if any of you are familiar with that. It's really just a form of religious superstition designed to suck people into thinking that they've heard from God when they have not, that they can know the future, which they cannot, that they can communicate with the dead, which they can't, that they can be, by incantation and superstition, become financially and personally successful, which does not work, and that by careful obedience to food laws, they can get God's special blessing, which is not true. That's Jewish myths. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths. And really what it turns out to be is not the commands of God. It's just the commands of people who turn away from the real truth. Paul may be using some of the language of Isaiah 29, 13 here. In vain they worship me, teaching commandments and doctrines of men. Jesus talked about this too, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Paul calls it in Colossians 2, human precepts and teachings. He says in 1 Timothy 6, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. 2 Timothy 4, they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So, Paul says a sharp rebuke is necessary so that they might be sound in faith. Educate and correct so that they may be turned in the right direction. Well, you might say, man, that seems awful hard. Can't we just punt? (laughs) Can't we just ignore them? I mean, why can't we just leave them alone and they leave us alone and, you know, we get along somehow? Verses 15 and 16, what happens when bad teaching is permitted? Verse 15, purity is compromised in two dimensions. It's compromised in how to think. That is, our discernment is affected and in the development of our conscience. So our discernment about what's true is compromised and our discernment about what is good is compromised. Look at verse 15, to the pure... All things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds, figuring out right from wrong, and their consciences, figuring out good from evil, are defiled." for the person who's true Christian who genuinely has the righteousness of Christ all things are pure there's growth both in how to think and in conscience that is freeing to the point that all things are pure and that's especially true of the food laws but for the person who's not a true Christian described here as defiled and unbelieving in Christ no amount of spirituality no amount of fastidiousness fastidiousness to obeying food laws, will ever help. Nothing is pure. They are wrong in their thinking, even on the rare occasion when they accidentally come by the truth. And their consciences likewise are so defiled that they can't know right from wrong, even though they try hard to follow some set of rules. The result is, verse 16 Profession does not match up with reality. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. And if there was ever any indictment on the modern church, I would say it is that, that what we say we believe and how we live have such a gap in them that a watching world says, I don't understand Christianity. So that's why you've got to stop false teachers, empty talkers, insubordinate deceivers. The life of such a person is emptied of good purpose. Uh, They are called here at the end of verse 16 detestable. One commentator says uh, they find abomination everywhere, but they themselves are abominable. Uh, They are disobedient, unpersuaded by God's word and disobedient to it. And they are unfit for any good work, useless, disapproved. A person who is not a Christian can do something quote-unquote good, but even the good that he does is useless, of no value. And so this is why we must have discernment, It's why we need to have good elders in the church, and it's why we need to not permit false teaching to grow. They must be silenced. Now, let me share with you a couple of applications. The the first few of these come from John Stott's excellent commentary on Titus. Um, I find him very helpful here. Paul says, uh, or Stott basically remarks, hey, maybe we should use, you know, we try all kinds of plans. Maybe we should use Paul's plan against false teaching. He refused to give in to it. He refused to ignore it. He did not surrender to it in a spirit of defeatism. He did not abandon the church. He didn't say, well, there's false teaching, so I'm out. Uh, he faced it. He spoke out against it. He rebuked it. And he rebuked the false teachers themselves. And most importantly, Paul himself taught the truth so that by the truth, people could grow in their discernment of error. Paul particularly engaged in a strategy to multiply good teachers. If false teachers exist, how much more do we need to grow good teachers? And then thirdly, Paul refused to lower the standards for teachers. Despite the fact that there was a shortage of good teachers, Paul never lowered the standard for them. You know, quite often, it's easy for us when we have a need to say, hey, if there's someone who applies for the position and they're enthusiastic, that's the reason we should appoint them. Now, interest and desire are needed, but they are not sufficient, are they? These strategies are important for all teaching positions in the church, but they are especially applicable to the appointment of pastors and elders. The very reason why good elders are to be appointed in the church is to protect the church against false teachers. Just imagine if a pastor or an elder was a false teacher, how damaging that would be for Christ's church. So we need to copy Paul's strategy. We live in a day where there are lots of false teachers who call themselves evangelicals. As I mentioned, the survey where about a third say that good works can save you. In that same survey, just under 40% said could not say that um, uh, human life is sacred. Uh, just under 40% said that there's no such thing as absolute truth. And these are people who say that they are evangelicals. So as we look at our own world, Paul's words here are particularly relevant. I leave you with one well, really two last applications. We began our service by reading two verses. One of them is that when Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he he will guide you into all truth. That the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. If you've never put your faith and hope in Jesus, I'm gonna tell you why when you read the Bible, some of it feels like gobbledygook. The reason is that you don't have a teacher with a capital T called the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit, when we become believers in Jesus, in fact takes up residence in our lives and he opens our eyes to the truth of Scripture. I want you to think about this example. There are a number of people who have shared with me their testimony of how they've come to faith in Christ. Quite often they will say, and then this person came along and they shared with me how Jesus died on the cross for my sins and how if I asked him to forgive me, he would do it. And so I asked him to forgive me and he did it. And they're so excited. And then they add this, and nobody has ever told me that before. When in fact, I know that literally scores of people have been telling them for years that very thing. How can they say nobody ever told them that before? The reason is their eyes were blind, their ears were deaf. They truly hadn't heard it before. This morning, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, here is a moment for you, for the Holy Spirit to come and take up residence in your life so that the truth of the word of God, indeed, it will open up a horizon of truth, In literally every dimension of your life, this is the moment for you. Put your faith in Jesus and let the Holy Spirit do that wonderful work in your life. Second application comes from the second verse that I shared with you from Hebrews chapter 5. The way that the Holy Spirit works is through the Word of God. And some believers are, I know this is hard to believe, but some believers are actually neglectful of the Word of God. They don't read it. They don't meditate on it. They don't study it. They don't apply it. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained, By constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What does it mean to have your powers of discernment trained by constant practice? It means that you are taking in the Word of God constantly and seeking to live it out. Not just read it, not just know it, but constant practice. The practice of applying the Word of God trained by constant practice And then you will be able to discern right from wrong, good from evil. So this morning, I leave you with those two. If you've never put your faith in Christ, trust Him so that the Spirit of God can teach you. And if you have put your faith in Christ, instead of dashing about for all these different places where we live in an echo chamber, return to the Word of God. The constant practice will help you distinguish good from evil. Heavenly Father, would you bless your Word as we seek this week to engage in that constant practice? Protect us from false teachers, Lord. We pray for the pastors and elders here at East White Oak Bible Church that they would live lives that are lives of worship, maturing in Christ, so that their lives and their practice would be such that their teaching could be understood and learned and embraced. We live in an age of skepticism, Lord. We can't help that. But we pray that here in this place, there may be a growth in trust built on reality, not on something that's false or pretend. But there would be a growth in trust that would bring great glory to your holy name. That your people would be discerning knowing right from wrong good from evil truth from error in jesus name amen